Hello everyone, and welcome back to the Drunken Storytellers podcast, where I, your erstwhile host, folklore nerd, freelance RPG writer, and a bit of a mad scientist, take you on a tour of folklore, myths and legends from across the globe. With a lot less inane drunk ramblings than I usually used to do. Um, getting too old for that. But yeah, welcome back, uh, and in this episode we are going to get a little bit spooky, and we're going to try to contact the dead. So I'm going to take a look at America's favourite divination tool and it's how it's used to contact the dead and its rise to its evil status that it is now. And then I think I'll dive into Japan's satanic panic. Yeah, it had one as well. Today we're going to look at Ouija boards and how Hasbro, yeah that, that big toy company that makes board games, uh, all the shit board games like Monopoly and, and things like that, um, ended up actually being connected to it. So we're going to start with looking at the Ouija board and its origins. Uh, then we'll kind of look at where these may have come from, I suppose. Um, like the earliest rendition of what we think might be a, a spirit board, as they are known. And we'll go into that a little bit. And then we'll look at Japan's Satanic Panic. So I'm going to guess most of you have heard of Ouija boards. And if you don't, well, they're basically a type of woo. Yes, I said it. Woo. So beyond that, uh, Ouija boards, though not always made of wood now, uh, and they're not always made of what? So beyond that, a Ouija board. Um, yeah, they're not always made out of wood. You can buy cloth ones and bed sheets and things and like pillows and, and wall hangs and all sorts of things of these now. So they've kind of become a bit of a, a commodity or, or a selling point and a cult symbolism and stuff. Uh, bit of fun but the most common design that we see nowadays is similar to the ones that you see in modern horror movies um, where you get this group of teenagers who think it's a really great idea to have a sleepover get one fuck around with it and then all get murdered by some kind of evil all very stereotypical so yeah it's a board <laughs> surprisingly enough hence it's Ouija board with along the top it usually kind of has in an arch it has the, the letters of the alphabet Below that, we have the numbers from 0 to 9, usually all 0 to 10, depending. On the top left-hand side, we have a yes, which is often next to a smiling moon or a full circle. And on the top right, we have a no, which is usually next to a crescent moon. Along the bottom, we have the phrase goodbye as well. So like at the very, very bottom of the board, goodbye. There are variations in the layout, but generally the content is the same. There's numbers, yes, no, goodbye, and all that kind of stuff. So that's the board itself. They come with what is called a planchet, uh, which is kind of like a small triangle looking thingy, uh, kind of like rounded bottom triangle thingy. And in the peak of the triangle, there's a viewing hole so you can look at where the planchet is lying. So that's that's the bases and the, what makes up a Ouija board. And I'm going to guess all of you know that already. And you probably already know kind of how they're used, but I'm going to go through it anyway. So you'd get a group of people and you'd sit around, you'd put it on a table, sit around it, and everyone would place their fingers on the planchet, which would start in the middle of the board. You'd then summon a spirit through some form of prayer or ritual or invocation or something. You can find examples of these online. Most of the instructions will, be tell, will tell you to be careful and respectful when you do this, so that you, you call the correct thing and not something evil, like those people in the movies tend to do. If you do accidentally 
or on purpose call a malevolent spirit, and which is often felt by goosebumps or the room feeling cold, or the atmosphere feeling off and things like that. You should move the planchette to goodbye and say goodbye very, very quickly. And then you flip the ta- you flip the table, no, you flip the planchet uh, to send the entity back to wherever it came from. It's kind of like a mini ghost flip kind of thing. You flip mini ghost table flip to banish the demon. So you're not flipping the table, you're flipping the planchet. If you have summoned a Casper friendly level spirit or entity or ghost or, or whatever, um, then you're good to go ahead and now start asking it questions. So basically, if, if the room doesn't feel malevolent and evil and bad, um, Casper's turned up and he's quite happy to maybe answer your questions. Make sure that when the questions are asked, that only one person is asking the questions so you don't confuse the poor dead person. They're only there for a chat. They don't need 30 of you kind of screaming questions for a while, for, for, for whatever reason. They, they just want to sit there and answer the questions. Buy them, uh, bring them a cup of tea and some biscuits. Make them feel welcome. Burn some incense. Chill the mood. Make it feel welcoming. Also, uh, key point, don't forget a pen and paper so you can write down what is said. Because um, what's the point in asking these people questions and then forgetting it? Also, if it's a bit slow and they're having to spell out long words, you're kind of going to forget things. So make sure there's a pen and pencil there. Once everything's all comfy and chill and you've got your pen and paper, all you need to do is obviously put your finger on the planchette and everybody should put their fingers on the planchette. And then you ask the question, is anybody there? And well, maybe the planchette moves. Maybe it moves to yes. Maybe it moves to no. Either way, the dead have come to speak to you. <laughs> uh, well, maybe. We'll, we'll get into that. If it moves to yes, then obviously you can continue asking questions. If it moves to no, I'd, I'd, I'd probably end, end the session right there. Because either they don't want to talk to you, or... Um, you summon something bad, maybe? I don't know. Anyway, words of warning in regards to this. Uh, a few of these are pretty sensible. Uh, some of them I don't quite get. So apparently you're not meant to do it in a graveyard. Um, I, I'm guessing that's because people think graveyards are evil. I'm not sure why you wouldn't, because like, going to be where most of the dead people are. It's like That's where, if you want to speak to a dead person, go to where they are rather than make them come to you. Be respectful. Anyway, you're not meant to do it in a, gra- in, in a graveyard. Also, um, it's recommended not to do it in your own house. In case it goes wrong is basically the reason I discovered uh, for this one. In case it goes wrong and you summon something bad, better it trashes your friend's house um, and takes up residency in their bedroom than yours. Uh, I think is the reason behind that one, which kind of makes sense. So if, if, if you're going to go and do this, go to your friend's house. Convince them it's a great idea to do it in their bedroom, just just in case you, you summon like the devil or something and it trashes your house. But there's someone else's house. There's your words of warning there. Uh, once you've asked all the questions and got a few answers, do remember to say goodbye. Move the planchet to, good, to goodbye and turn it over. So you're effectively closing the door and it's saying goodbye, please be gone, uh, we've shut the door on you now, sorry. That is at least what spiritualists and mediums and modern witches believe about it anyway. They believe it as a way of communicating with the dead. Scientifically speaking, it is using an effect known as the idiomotor response. This was discovered 
by Michael Faraday. Yeah, that Faraday from like the electric cage fame and electromagnetism and was a hardcore physicist. Um, he was studying another spiritual phenomenon known as table turning, where you basically sit around a table, call a spirit, and the table kind of goes bouncy, 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 depending upon the responses. And apparently it's not people's legs making it bounce, honest. But yeah, so the idiomotor response or automatism, automatism is a psychological response that causes a physical movement within a person and the person is unconsciously aware that they are performing this movement. So with the Ouija board, you are subconsciously moving the planchette on the board or in table turning, you're, you're bouncing the table, but you don't realize that you're doing this. So this is what it lead, This is what leads to it seeming to be paranormal or spiritual. So there have been a lot of studies on, on, on all of these kind of things and you can Google them and stuff. And there are experiments that you can perform yourself. One of them is where you dangle a pendulum over a piece of paper and it has yes or no written on it. And small movements in the person's hand can cause vibrations in the string, causing the pendulum to swing, uh, to move. In 2019, there was a study by Cantagheri, which was published in Human Movement Science, which is available for free on something called BioArchive, uh, B-I-O-R-X-I-V. This is a preprint scientific journal website where it's um, own, papers that only go up there have been reviewed and peer reviewed by scientists. And they showed and for the first time recorded these tiny minute movements in the hand that caused the pendulum to swing. So it was it's the first time that we've ever kind of really videoed and recorded it at slow motion because we now have these high-speed cameras and stuff. So is it spirits talking to us or is it us unconsciously answering the questions? I know what I believe, uh, but I'll let you come to your own ideas on that one. That is what Ouija boards are and they do, but where did they actually come from? Uh, and why did I talk about Hasbro? Well, you probably, as I say, already know the, some of the connection to Hasbro. Um, but we'll go into it and kind of kind of how new that connection really is. But let's start with the beginnings of the Ouija board. It all starts with war. What a better place for a medium gain fame with talking to the dead during a bloody massacre. To ply you with their trade and seek coin to say that their loved ones are there and talking to you from beyond the grave and has nothing to do with the fact that they want to take their money from you. So yes. Um, we're looking at kind of the period of the American Civil War and the 1850s onwards. So in Europe at the time, spiritualism was a big thang. Everybody was into it. And in 1848, it arrives with quite a big bang into the US through the Fox Sisters of upstate New York. I will look at them another day. I'm not gonna go into too much about them now because wow, Wow. They claimed to be able to speak to the dead by listening to raps on the walls. And they took it on a national tour. So they were the kind of the ones who kind of nationalized spiritualism. And it seemed to hit a key with Americans at the time. It tied well into Christian dogma. Um, and they seemed to have no problem with going to seances and automatic writing sessions and table turnings and stuff like that. They even hosted them as parties. It became so popular that even Mary Lincoln, yeah, wife of the famous President Abe Lincoln, um, held seances 
after their 11-year-old son died of a fever to try and contact him. So yeah, it, it reached all of American society. And well, the American Civil War kicked off in 1861, and the spiritualists had a field day. Around 650,000 people were killed over the four years of the war. And so, that's quite a lot of spirits for people to talk to. But a lot of families didn't know whether their loved ones were dead in a field somewhere, so spiritualism exploded with people trying to, to find out where their loved ones were and what was going on. But people were also getting frustrated with it. With the spirits, maybe. They, they were apparently too slow to respond. Come on, peeps, they're dead. It's not like they've got anything urgent to do. They've got all the time in the world. Have a little bit of patience with them. They're learning how to deal with being dead. It's not like they can kind of walk around and pick up a pen and write with it, is it? But yeah, anyway, <laughs> um, the public got bored waiting for answers, and so new means of communication were sought. And in 1886, this changed. The, at the time, the newly formed Associated Press, yeah, the Associated Press that we all love and know, that is one of the big press organisations that, that does a lot of the, the reporting and journalism, it reported on something happening in the fields and spiritualist camps in Ohio. It wasn't a big thing at the time, and it was something called a talking board, which, as we'll find out, is a very early version of the Ouija board. The article gained quite a lot of attention, as in people were very interested in reading it. But not many people went much further than that, other than one man, who saw within it the great American dream. Dollar signs flashed before his eyes. He saw a quick way to communicate with the dead. This man was Charles Kennard of Baltimore. So he then got a group of friends together, a group of investors, and formed what is known, what was known as the Kennard Novelty Company. The sole goal of this new company? Fleecing spiritualists by being the sole producer of the talking board. Yeah. They, 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 none of them who were in there, in the company, were spiritualists. None of them believed it, but what they saw was a way to make money. So this is where the selling of spirit or talking boards actually began in the US. But the name had yet to be decided on. Now, there are rumours and, and people think that the, the name comes from the French and German words for yes, and I can kind of maybe see a little bit of that, because oui is, of, is French for yes, ja is German for yes, and it's spelt O-U-I-J-A, so ja, ja, German for yes, except we say Ouija, so the pronunciation is slightly off, but that's not where the name comes from at all. So there's a guy called Robert Merckx, who in 1992 wrote a book on the history of Ouija boards. And a lot of the notes here come from that book um, and kind of bits around the internet from other kind of like the Smithsonian and stuff like that. So this book says that the name comes from one of the investors, Elijah Bond's sister-in-law, a lady called Helen Peters. She was an avid medium and spiritualist and used talking boards. And she asked the talking board what it should be called. And apparently the board responded, Ouija, and, and told her that it meant good luck. Another idea comes from actually a misreading of someone's name. 
Um, so there was a lady called Weeda, who was a women's rights activist at the time, and apparently Helen Peters greatly admired her. Her name is spelled O-U-I-D-A, so a misreading or a misspelling of that name could have slipped in there. The truth is we don't really know where the name came from, but it's most likely that it's just made up. Uh, now, the Kennard Novelty Company, they had a name and a product. All you needed to sell this product was a patent. And this is where things get a little bit weird. The chief clerk at the patent's office would only give a patent if they could actually prove that the board worked. And while obviously Bond and Kennard and all the investors didn't actually believe it, so it's like, well, what do we do here? So Bond took Helen with him to Washington to apply for this, this patent. And the, 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 the chief clerk asked for a demonstration. He asked if the board could spell out his name. And he had not introduced himself to either Bond or Miss Peters. So, Elijah and Helen sat at a table. They set up the board, placed the planchet down with fingers touching it, and communed with the spirits. And lo and behold, the board spelt out the name of the clerk. And the clerk's face went white. He walked off and came back with a patent for a toy or game, and it was issued on February the 10th, 1891. Now, I've actually missed a bit of information out of there for you. Elijah Bond. Yes, he's an investor, but he also has another job. His other job is that he is a patent attorney. So he may well have known who the chief clerk was in the Washington Patent Office before he arrived. Because obviously he doesn't believe in, in what the board does. So he could quite easily have, either through the idiomotor response or quite willingly known that he was moving it. So it was a full-on Conman-style spiritualism right there. There's no evidence to say that it was this way or it was not that way. But... I, I'm inclined to believe that he did know the guy's name. He was a patent attorney, and so did that full, full-on con man spiritualism style thing. But it got them the patent for for the Ouija board. Now, most things take a little bit of time to kind of grow, and businesses trying to grow and things. But however, this this was not the case with the Canadian Novelty Company. It exploded in just one year. From the time that they had the patent. They only had one factory in Baltimore that was capable to produce the Ouija board. However, a year later, they had two in Baltimore. They also had two in New York, and two in Chicago, and one in London. So yeah, within a year, they had gone from one factory to seven, with them being spread across the United States and one in England. So yeah, it kind of exploded quite a bit there. However, all was not plain sailing, and by 1893, both Bond and Kennard were no longer with the company. As the saying goes, money changes people, and there were arguments about the way the company was being run and, and things, but Bond and Kennard left the company. The company was transferred to the hands of one William Fold, who, a few years later, in 1898, was given permission by someone known as Colonel Bowie, who was the largest shareholder, he was given permission 
by Colonel Bowie to license the board so that the company was the sole owner of the rights to produce the Ouija board. So not only were they growing massively, they now were the sole owners of the Ouija board and the spirit board selling it. So, boom, another big step forward for this company. Over the years, other companies did try to produce boards, but none of them really took off, mainly probably because the Fold company, as it became known, controlled the rights for it. And in 1919, um, Colonel Bowie sold his stake in the company to Fold for a grand, massive total of $1. Yep, $1. Probably what would, at the, t- the company would have been a multi-million dollar company at the time. So I'm guessing um, Bowie made a load of money off it somewhere and just went, yo, I don't want anything to do with this. Here you go, have a dollar. I'll, I'll leave you alone. Do what you want with it. And so, yeah, the company got sold to Fold. And it carried on making Ouija boards and things, so... Fold died in a very interesting way. He died falling off the roof of one of his factories in 1927. And this is a factory that he claimed the Ouija board told him to build. Obviously, he didn't claim this after he was dead, unless there's some Ouija board shit going on there. But apparently, uh, he claimed that the Ouija board told him to build this factory. And then he dies falling off its roof in a weird accident. Fold's obituary in the New York Times listed him as the inventor of the Ouija board, which we know is not true. Um, it's quite a bit of a blatant lie. So there are some places which will say that Fold was the inventor, but that's the only place that, that kind of story comes from. It's the obit- Fold's obituary. Then I think at the time the company had, had changed to Fold's company or something similar to that. I can't remember what it was actually called. So, um, from the birth of the board, how do we get to Hasbro? The game, it kind of went from success to success, especially during the years of the Great Depression and through World War II. There was one department store in New York who, in 1944, sold over 50,000 copies in a few months. And then in 1966, the Fold Company sold the rights to the Ouija board to a company known as the Parker Brothers. Again, these were um, board game manufacturers. Um, you can kind of every now and then see Parker Brother games around there. They work quite a bit on eBay and stuff. So um, They bought the rights to the game, and in 1967, they sold 2 million copies, and it was one of the biggest selling games in the world at the time, outselling Monopoly. And up until the 70s, the Ouija board was generally seen only in certain circles, kind of on the periphery of American culture and was seen as a bit of fun, harmless way to spend an evening, even appearing in an episode of I Love Lucy. I can't remember what the name of it is. It's something like, let's do a seance or something like that. And so for quite a long time, it was just seen as a way to communicate with the dead, quite nice, bit of friendly fun, nothing harmless. However, this all changed in 1973 with the release of one of the most notorious horror movies out there the exorcist so not only did we see a pea soup spinning head floating child scare the living crap out of people uh, nearly everywhere in the world which got the movie banned in places and branded cursed due to a lot of weird shit that happened well a lot of weird shit that may have just been invented by the pr company but still so um the board the film actually included a ouija board and the girl, Regan, who became possessed by Pazuzu, she, came, she became possessed after playing with one. 
and so it all then went a bit batshit. It went from this nice fan, family-friendly fun night of entertainment to It's the work of the devil! This shit is fucking evil! Burn it! Almost overnight. And so since then, it has, gone, it has become a staple of horror movies and, and witches and demons and all manner of evil and macabre shenanigans in the media. And I'm not going to go into the, all of those because I don't really want to. But yeah, there's stories. There are stories of murders connected to it. None of those are true as far as I know. But there's a movie called Ouija and all sorts of stuff. And so yeah, right. Hasbo. Hasbo? Hasbro. Hasbro. Bro! Yeah, anyway. <laughs> in 1991, Hasbro acquired the Parker Brothers Corp company and therefore they got the publishing rights and patent for Ouija boards. And since then, they have been producing them in their various forms, including a glow-in-the-dark version, which I think is kind of cool. Um, they are very popular with modern wickers and modern witchcraft and are still used in seances and sleepovers and modern spiritualism the world over. So there you go, a bit of a history about a famous piece of wood with letters on it that apparently lets you speak to the dead. And that is the Ouija board. But are spirit boards and Ouija boards the sole domain of American spiritualism? Where, where do they come from? Do we see things similar in other cultures? And the simple answer is yes. Though they don't all take the same form as the well-known Ouija board, they are, there are similarities in the way that they're kind of mostly automatic writing systems is probably the best way to kind of describe them. Some of the earliest recorded methods are found in China through a system known as Fuji. And this is where you have a sieve or a tray which is used to guide a stick, sometimes a planchette, um, to write words in sand or incense ash. The first recorded example dates back to the Liuxiang dynasty of 420 to 479 CE. It becomes popular during the Song dynasty of 960 to 1279 CE, but then but was then outlawed in the Qing dynasty because it had connections to necromancy. They're like, oh no, we don't like dead people rising, so please don't do that. And there are stories that some of the sacred Taoist texts were written using Fuji. There is a kind of spirit board from West Africa called the Ifa. It's a form of divination from something that is known as the Yoruba religion. I had to look this up and, and got lost in quite a large rabbit hole because it's vastly fascinating but also vastly complex. So we do see it there, we've got seeing it in different parts of the world. And there are other there are other forms like automatic writing. Some of the earliest things that we see with automatic writing actually relate to John Dee and his ability to speak to angels with Enochian uh, automatic writing and things like that. Uh, I'm going to save John Dee for another day. Let's let's move on to Japan uh, and talk about how how this relates to what could be called Japan's satanic panic, I suppose. So there is a game, um, and they call it a game. In Japan called Kokuri-san um, and it allows you to talk to random possibly malevolent spirits. It originated uh, in the Meiji period in response to people seeing American soldiers do table turning. So it's it's a relatively new idea but there are earlier forms of divination and spirit writing within 
uh, Japanese history, but this is kind of like the most prominent one, and I like the idea that it kind of connects to what could be considered a, a satanic panic in a way. But it's also very, very similar to a Ouija board, at least the modern version of it is. The name kind of means, means to nod up and down, um, and is almost onomatopoeic, especially when you look at the original game from the 1850s or something. Um, because it kind of represents the, the sound of the tipping of the kokuri as it kind of rocks in its cradle. And we'll get into that in a bit, like kokuri, kokuri, kokuri. Um, so it's onomatopoeic. Um, the kanji used to write the name um, were originally chosen to be um, what is known as ateji, um, which means they were chosen for their phonetic sounds over any real meaning. However, folklore has arisen over them due to the, the kanji that are actually being used. And so ko is actually the kanji for the kitsune fox. Ku is the kanji for dog or tengu. Um, and li is the kanji for tanuki or a raccoon dog. And this has given rise to the belief that the spirit summoned during the game is a kind of fox dog raccoon spirit. Now, in Japan, the, the Kitsune Fox is a trickster and shapeshifter. The Tengu are mythical dog-like creatures, kinda. Um, like Tengu means heavenly dog, and we'll probably look at the origins of the Tengu one day as it's quite long and fascinating. I, I kind of got this memory that I've done this before, so if I have, I can't remember. Uh, blame my old age. But yeah, they, are, they can be seen as tricksters as well, um, which can be related to sometimes their monkey form. And they're quite often considered kami or gods in Shintoism. And the tanuki, which is actually a real creature, which is the raccoon or the raccoon dog, and they're also closely related to being mischievous and masters of disguise. So basically, you're summoning a trickster kami who can hide themselves to talk to. Now, is that does that really sound like a great idea? Like the Ouija board, you're summoning your dead relatives. This one, you're summoning something that is possibly related to tricksters. Well, anyway. So how 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 is Kokuri played? Uh, traditionally, when it first kind of was invented, there would be uh, a cloth laid on the table, and you get three bamboo sticks, um, and you'd arrange them in tripod, tri tripod, kind of tied together with a little bit of um, bamboo rope or string or something. Almost like you're kind of setting up them over a fire. Because on top of this, you then put what's known as a hitsu. Some places you uh, say it's a small pot, so you can imagine like it being a over a fire and the fire pot and things. But now a hitsu is actually a small wooden chest with a lid. Um, it's usually circular. And so yeah, you place this hitsu on this kind of tripod of bamboo sticks. They're not big because it needs to fit on the table. Um, sometimes then a cloth is placed over this as well, not always. And the, then the participants would place their fingers, much like you do in a Ouija board, on top of the lid. The spirit would then be summoned, again with some form of ritual, and questions would be asked. Depending on the questions and the answers, the, the hitsu would move. So that's where we get the kukuri kukuri sound. And over the years, though, the setup of the game actually changed and evolved to what is now used. It's, that's where you kind of see the original form of it. It's not really seen much nowadays. Um, you can see images of it if you go onto Google and th things as to kind of how it might have looked. But yeah, it, it changed probably around the turn of the 20th century. Um, there's some, some stuff in the Yomori Shimbun, I think, from like 1901 about the, the more modern version that we see. And this is where it kind of relates more to the Ouija. 
So on, on a table, a piece of paper is laid out and you either draw a toidi, um, so this a, a gate, like those gates that you see in Shinto temples and Buddhist temples. You can either draw it or you can make it from bamboo sticks. It's either placed in the middle of the paper or at the top of the paper. You then get a 10 yen coin, so which is about an English penny, and this is placed inside the gate. To either side of the gate is written yes and no. Below the gate we have the Japanese alphabet in hiragana, and below the alphabet we have the number 0 to 9. So pretty much similar setup to the Ouija board. However, you are creating this by hand each time you do it. Again, a few key things to remember when performing Kokuri, or Kokuri-san. Much in the same vein as Ouija, about basically not trapping bad things inside your house. To not trap bad things inside your house, play it with a window or door open. And that must be kept open during the entire game. It must not be allowed to close. So whether if you have a window, make sure the window is kept open. If there's no window, keep the door open and, and make sure it's kept open. Otherwise, you trap it. You, you trap the spirit within the house with you. The toddy has to be, if it's hand-drawn, it needs to be drawn in red um, in the style of the gates, the, the toddy gates that you'll see at temples um, because of the religious protection that they would offer. And so that's kind of the basis of the setup. Um, and much like the, the Ouija board, um, and the original version, the players would be putting their fingers onto the coin in the gate. And you would summon the spirit by chanting, Kokuri-san, Kokuri-san, dozo oide kudasai. Moshi oide ni naremashita la hai ni susumi kudasai. This basically means, Kokuri-san, Kokuri-san, please come. If you have come, please move to hai, which means yes. And if the coin moves, then boom, you have a spirit with you. Uh, it's likely going to be what's known as a teikure, uh, which is a low-level animal spirit of, of of some kind, because like you don't like gods and and important spirits don't have time for school kids pissing around with games. If the coin moves to no, do not continue, do not pass go, and do not collect two hundred dollars. Apologise for any inconvenience caused. Remove your fingers from the coin and close the windows. Just, just like back away slowly. It doesn't want to be here. Let it go. However, if yes, then obviously you can continue to ask your questions. But remember, after each question, the coin needs to return to the gate. If the coin does not return to the gate, you are not protected. Um, once all the questions have been asked, return the coin to the gate and thank Kokuri-san and say goodbye. You can then remove your fingers from the coin and the game is almost over. The piece of paper that you used and the, the bamboo sticks if you created the gate yourself need to be destroyed by fire within 24 hours and then the ashes disposed of. The coin should then also be spent within 10 days. It doesn't matter what you buy, just as long as it is spent. It is used in some form of financial transaction. If not, Kokuri-san will come back and haunt you and give you bad luck. That's how you then finish the game. So it, unlike the Ouija board, this obviously you can't really make any money out of this because basically you're destroying it within 24 hours of use. Once you have once you have destroyed everything and you spent the coin, you can then redo this. You can do this as many times as you like. 
But if you've not spent the coin or destroyed it and you kind of repeat everything, then yeah, you're going to trap the, um, the spirit with you. It's got another thinking behind that. The game became massively popular in Japan in the 70s. Well, it became massively popular in Japan for quite a long time. But in the 70s, among high school children particularly, and especially girls, who would actually play it at school. It gained nationwide media attention and kind of turned into a bit of a media frenzy. And panic and fear started to spread from the, the parents and teachers about kids playing it at school. And it led to this kind of fear like we saw in, in America in the 80s with that satanic panic. It was the same kind of level based around this game. And the media fueled it. Um, they they full on went into into the kind of uh, your kids are summoning demons and, and doing bad shit at school, and it led the led to the game being banned in almost all schools across the country. I don't think that the ban lasted very long because um, when I was in Japan teaching uh, junior and senior high schools, I did see people playing it. Um, it, it seemed quite popular, um, but it was kind of being, it was being played in classrooms at lunchtime and, and break times and stuff. And they were openly playing it. It didn't. It kind of seemed a bit of a joke, just a bit of a fun thing to do at lunchtime. But whether it was doing anything good or bad, not sure. My Japanese wasn't that great at the time when I saw these things happen. I was kind of aware what they were doing, and teachers would tell me, and, and they'd say, "Yeah, we used to do that when we were kids." It kind of seems like a bit of a rite of passage in a way. I had a few um, girlfriends in Japan who told me that they played it when they were kids in high school in the 90s. So it's still around, it's still being played. It kind of seems like a bit of a rite of passage, I suppose. But yeah, so that's that's kind of what is you can consider the satanic panic in Japan in a way. It did. It, it was massively all over the media and, and, and fear. And But if you want to kind of hear more on the Kukuri-san... I would highly recommend listening to episode 87 of Uncanny Japan, where Teresa and Richard play the game live in the episode. You can see whether anything really happens or not. Anyway, that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed this kind of delve into the history of the Ouija board and Kokuri-san. Nice, nice to kind of look at some, like, not stories, but actual kind of other things for once. But yeah, as always, you can find me on all those social places, social media. I'm on Twitter as The Drunken Storyteller, which is at The Drunken Store One. I'm on Facebook as The Drunken Storyteller. You can find the RPG games that we play um, with a few people over on YouTube or Twitch, The Drunken Storyteller. Both of those there. And I think that's it. Um, all that is left for me to say is goodbye, my friends.